All right, everyone, go ahead and find your seats. We're going to start here because we've got a lot to unpack. Because as I have joked many times before, uh, we're talking about church history and we're talking about the medieval era. Remember, the medieval era literally spans 1,000 years. So 1,000 of the 2,000 years of church history is literally the medieval period from about 500 to about the 1500s with Martin Luther. And if you've all been tracking for a while, we're at the tail end. Last lesson, we were talking about around the 1300 era. And so we're in what's called the late medieval era. Scholars, and you know scholars like to parse things and be really night and tidy with the I's dotted, T's crossed and all that. They parse out the medieval era into three eras. You have the earlier low period, you got the, the middle period, and then you have the later or high period. It was called the medieval ages. 1300s to about Martin Luther is considered the later medieval era. That's kind of where we are, but now we are on the road to Reformation. We talked about medieval theology last time, which we did a broad stroke tour talking about what were the theological controversies, theological developments, uh, in particular in Europe. When we talk about a lot of church history, we're primarily focusing on the Western front, Western Christianity. We did do lessons on Eastern Christianity because we don't want to forget about them, but we're primarily focusing on Europe. And so that's what we're talking about right now. So we're at the road to Reformation, and we have had windows into things culminating to the Reformation right. If you guys have been paying attention, we've already talked a lot about certain theological issues. We talked about Thomas Aquinas, who was the architect of what we would know as the early Roman Catholic theology. He was kind of the architect for that. Uh, we also talked about different developments with transubstantiation, predestination controversies, and all of that. Uh, the rise of the papacy. We talked about how the papacy became the thing it was in Europe. Uh, so you can go back and listen to those lessons if you need a refresher, because today I'm going to assume some things that you guys already know because we've talked about it. I'll clarify different points. But now we're on the road that leads to Luther, to Germany, to the Protestant Reformation. And a lot of people are like, yes, that's where church history really begins, right? It goes from Jesus, it goes to Paul, and then to Martin Luther, which, again, we laugh, but it's, we know that's not true. Jesus has, had a, has been ruling and reigning for 2,000 years in heaven, on earth through his church. The gates of hell don't prevail against it. And so to not know the general trajectory of church history is to make a mockery of the work of Christ. Scripture is sufficient to give us the gospel, but history is the unfolding of the work of the gospel. And as the psalmist says, great are your works, O Lord, and worthy of study and awe for those who study them. So that's what we're doing is studying the works of our king. So with that said, let's pray, and we're going to go on this road to reformation. Father, we thank you for being our God, that you love us. I pray that you would give us uh, minds fresh and ready to learn, ears to hear and eyes to see uh, great truths in history because providence is the unfolding of your divine plan in time and space through your son. I pray that it would be illuminating, enlightening to your people, encouraging as we learn from the good, bad, and ugly of church history so that we can better glorify you be guarded against heresy, reclaim things that we have forgotten, and advance your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so it goes without saying that Martin Luther 
When he nailed his 95 theses on the Wittenberg door in Germany, he didn't do it on a whim. The Protestant Reformation didn't spring up in a vacuum. We know that. But if I was to ask you guys, how did the Reformation start, what would be your answer? Let's go ahead. Throw it, throw it out. Isaiah, what caused the Reformation? It's okay. You don't get it right. You'll just get an F at the end, and you're fine. Yep, that, that's definitely true. Now, I know that you are a good student of history. Was that the only thing? No. No, good, yes. You know, yeah, you know it. So, yes, yeah, so corruption was one. Uh, what's another one? Anybody? It's all right if you don't know. How, how about indulgences? Does that sound familiar to anyone, the selling of indulgences? Uh, or or, or what, why, why are we called evangelical? What, what, was, what were we protesting in the Reformation? Sal- salvation by works versus salvation by grace. Or in other terms, justification by faith. Yes. So when most people think about the Protestant Reformation, we're thinking justification by faith. And yes, absolutely, that was a core thing, but was not the only core thing. And actually, it was not the main reason that the reformation happened it was a lot of culminating issues which again we're talking about centuries of culminating issues so i'm going to put it in neat bullet points for you but there's many more that could be added to my list there's also going to be variegated or multi-dimensional facets to all of these but i'm going to try and give you the highlights because again when we're studying history There's going to be names and dates. I don't want you to get messed up or jacked up in your head with the names and dates. It's not about the names and dates, but knowing the general ideas and trajectory, because that is how we learn from history. So the general trajectory on the road to Reformation is centuries of culmination of various issues. We've had windows already for the last several lessons leading to that. But this first lesson are going to be the mile markers on this road to Reformation, the key issues that will lead to Luther and the Protestant Reformation. We're going to be looking at those mile markers. Next lesson, Lord willing, we're going to look at the highwaymen on this road to Reformation. We're going to be talking about the pre-Reformation voices, the early dissonant groups and voices like John Wycliffe and Tyndall and Jan Hus and the Waldensians and the Petrobrusians and many other people and groups that stood up against the machine and the Borg that ended up becoming medieval Roman Catholicism that Luther protested. And then finally, the last lesson on the road to Reformation, we're going to take the exit ramp to the Reformation as we examine the final key factor and context that made the Reformation possible. We'll be looking at the Renaissance and a man from the Renaissance called Erasmus. How many of you have heard his name before? The famous debate between Luther and Erasmus on the bondage of the will. Erasmus in the Protestant of God was a key player that made it possible for the Reformation to happen. So we're talking about that. So today, we're looking at the key issues, the mile markers leading to the Reformation. So the first road we're going to be looking at is the moral road that led to Reformation. We'll also be looking at the religious road to Reformation, the political road that led to the Reformation. uh, And then we will also be looking at the theological road that led to the Reformation. We have a lot to uncover. I'm going to be going fast again. Try and hang on. I'll try and pause. If you all have questions at all, wait to the end or raise your hand and interject. That is totally fine. So 
Strap in, here we go. The moral road to reformation. If you guys have been tracking with me for the last several lessons, as Isaiah mentioned, Europe, embodied in Luther, became very immoral and was fed up with a lot of the immorality in the church. As we have learned over the course of time in Western Europe, in Roman Catholic Europe, the increasing scandals amongst the priests and the bishops began to escalate at an all-time high. And the ordinary faithful Christians felt it. And they suffered as well from it. As you know, we have all witnessed what happens when prominent pastors fall to sexual temptation and sin, what, what corrupt scandals happen, all of that. Europe didn't have one here, one here. It was the common practice for most priests. By the time you get to the 1300s, most priests had illegitimate children, mistresses, and that included bishops. And it even, as we will learn, included the popes. Of all the clerical players, the popes themselves were the most heinous. And there's a lot of reasons why the sexual immorality grew. One of the main reasons why, and when a critique that Luther had and the reformers had to Rome, was the, the artificial rule that priests, pastors had to be celibate did a disservice to the people of God because they burned with passion. And so, of course, for those who were not given the gift of celibacy, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, of course these men are going to burn with passion. They need wives. Well, the Roman Catholic Church, because of the long trajectory of the practice of uh, monastic vows, believing that celibacy gives you more freedom and time to serve Jesus, therefore it's the superior way to serve the church, they said no, if you're going to be a priest, if you're going to be a pastor, you must be celibate. And they didn't listen to any other voice or reasoning. So that was one major contributing factor to why immorality was on a rise. And the other factor we know as just good Bible students and as good Reformed people is the total depravity of man. What is one of the greatest chief sins that men and women have? Sexual desires. It is a great gift of God. It is a strong, consuming passion. But it becomes a passion. And so you have the susceptibility of depraved men put in positions of power. And they take advantage of that position because of their natural inclination to temptation, which is exacerbated by the fact that they are not married, led to this perpetual wave of generation after generation of priests and bishops who were immoral. And one of the results of that was an increasing of sexual immorality and general uh, decay of morality amongst ordinary Christians. Because as goes the shepherd, so go what? Flock. Well, if priests can do it, I can do it. Well, if they can't do it, I shouldn't do it. Or it doesn't really matter. Or this is the example I have for a variety of reasons the people of God in medieval Europe, by the time of the 1300s in particular, uh, it was normal to have sexual immorality be part of the church. Although many knew that that's not good, that was just kind of the norm. And so that was 
a huge issue for the church. Now, that wasn't to say that everyone was corrupt. By no means. There were many voices for centuries calling for reform. When we talk about the reformers, when we talk about the pre-Reformation voices like Tyndall, Wycliffe, Huss, even though they all had their own unique voices, although they all had issues that were different, everybody agreed including faithful Roman Catholic theologians, faithful ordinary Roman Catholics. The church needs moral reformation. Many of the popes tried to seek moral reformation. That was the one thing that everyone agreed upon. The church is in a moral state of decay. We need to have reformation somehow. The problem was no one had a consistent or clear answer on how to do that. They tried various programs. Some popes tried to build better cathedrals to inspire people's faith more. Or they could have just went back to the Bible. We laugh, but that's going to lead to one of our next issues down here about a Bible translation being, being one of the leading issues. Needless to say, attempts to Reformation tried to occur, but they didn't occur. And so there was a huge immorality factor in the church. So much so that John Calvin later, when he wrote about the state of the church at his time and commenting on the church for centuries prior, so the church had so many grievous diseases from within. And one of those was the rampant immorality. So the increasing immorality made Christians in Europe realize something is wrong because we know that this is not what God intended. There was a, a, a lifelessness that was occurring amongst the people of God there because of this issue. The next issue is the religious road to Reformation. So you have this steady moral decay amongst the priests and amongst the bishops. And as a reminder, in this time period, bishops were uh, the, the overseers of priests in a region called a diocese. And then you have a group of people called the cardinals. And the cardinals were the bishops within certain dioceses within the city of Rome who were right under the pope, who was the chief bishop of Rome. And as we know, the pope became, over the course of time, to be seen as the head of all the collective church, that he is a representation of Jesus and of Peter for the people of God. He is to provide direction. And the tragedy of the papacy is that there was massive corruption leading for centuries among the papacy that made people question more and more by the time the 1300s come around papal authority so papal authority was one of the leading issues because the issue of the pope's authority was a central issue because what had rome claimed for almost 1500 years Jesus established Peter as the head of the church, and the, the successors of Peter are the faithful heads of the church in an unbroken chain, unbroken chain of apostolic succession, divinely appointed by God for the direction and welfare of the church. All right? So then you get these so-called divinely appointed vicars of Christ, and you look at their immorality that make the priests with the mistress down the road look like a saint, let me give you an example. Immorality amongst popes was so deplorable between the 1300s and the time of Martin Luther, it was nicknamed the pornocracy. To give you an example, many of the popes held multiple mistresses and had children out of wedlock. 
I'll name a few. Pope Innocent VIII, not so innocent, by the way. Uh, ironic right there. From 1484 to 1492, his reign of pope, he fathered 16 illegitimate children. He claimed eight of them as his own. Pope Alexander VI, pope from 1492 to 1503, he openly housed mistresses at the Vatican as normal, walking around. He fathered 12 illegitimate sons. His daughter, her name Lucretia, became a notorious prisoner and was an embarrassment to the family. He tried to appoint one of his sons as a cardinal, successfully did it, and then he tried to get that son to ascend the papacy on his behalf, but was later shot down. Besides being players, many of the popes were also just power-hungry for papal glory. As you guys remember from the lesson of the rise of the papacy, we talked about how the pope became so powerful. The power plays that the pope would begin to use over the monarchs in Europe, especially Germany, France, and England. And the way that they utilized their office and their keys of the kingdom, saying, hey, John, King John, if you don't do this, I'm excommunicating you in the whole of England from heaven. Do as I say. Hey, King Otto. Hey, King Philip of France. And centuries of that wore down the people of Europe. And these power-hungry popes, not all of them were, but many, continued to increase by the time of Martin Luther's day. Let's just look at one in particular, Pope Julius II, Pope from 1503 to 1513. Literally the Pope during the time that Luther was a monk and studying theology. Pope Julius II spent most of his reign raging battles to reclaim papal lands in Italy. So much so that he was, at, he was at war so much that he often gave mass in his suit of armor with a sword drawn. And he was famous for the selling of indulgences to fund his warfare. And if, as a reminder, the selling of indulgences was the selling of a piece of paper that if you, as a faithful Christian, give on behalf of the church, on behalf of the pope, it would reduce your time in purgatory. He funded, many popes utilized indulgences during this time to fund their conquests, their crusades, their papal buildings. If you go to Rome right now, if you go... To St. Peter's Basilica. How many of you know what that is? St. Peter's Basilica. Have you seen that beautiful thing? That thing was funded by the selling of indulgences. So, sexual immorality, the players, and the power-hungry popes escalated during the time of Martin Luther's day. 1300s all the way to the 1500s. It began to be worse and worse in many, many ways. And that immorality began to wear down on the people. And obviously there's a trickle-down effect that if the popes are this corrupt, what about the bishops under them? What about the priests under them? Of course they're going to turn a blind eye. Of course they're not going to really reform the church if they are power-hungry. If they're housing mistresses, certainly they're not going to do anything to the bishop who is or the priests who are. And so it began, began a slippery slope issue in the papacy and in all the clerical of of Europe. So papal authority was beginning to be undermined through the immorality of the popes 
and through the embarrassment of papal debacles. Uh, one in particular is called the Avenese Papacy, or was also called in history the Babylonian Captivity of the Papacy. Nicknamed, uh, the Babylonian Captivity is nicknamed from Scripture when the people of Israel were sent to Babylon for 70 years in captivity for judgment. This was a period of time where the papacy relocated from Rome to Avignon, France, which is about several hundred miles southeast of, of Paris. And I'm not going to go into all the details because there's a lot, but in a nutshell, in 1307, a French cardinal became elected to become the next pope of the church. And in a desire to see French glory eclipse Italian Roman glory, decided to relocate the Vatican from Rome to Avignon, France. And for 70 years, hence the Babylonian captivity number seven, and hence the papacy, the bishop of Rome, didn't live in Rome. He lived in France. He lived in Avignon, France. And each successive pope, by and large, during that time, was a Frenchman. The French wanted control of the papacy for French national glory and power. Well, in the end, the result of that was a fracturing of Europe. One of the results of that was dis, uh, discontentment among the Christians in Europe, and, and feuds and schisms began to happen because the Italians erupted saying, how dare you, this is our seat of power. You had many other people in Europe who said, no, the Bishop of Rome should actually come from Rome. It shouldn't come from France. But then you had other people seizing on uh, the, the political opportunity to be rid of Roman authority, said, yes, let it be in Avignon. We don't want the papal authority anymore. And so you had a feud between the different nation states and their theological convictions motivated ultimately by political ambitions. We want to see French nationalism. No, we want German nationalism. They don't really care about the theological issue. They want the nationalism. Again, there were many who cared about the theological issue. I'm not saying there were not. Broadly speaking, it was related to political ambition. Well, by the time of 1370, Pope Gregory XI in his attempt and desire to reunite Catholic Europe, relocated the seat of the papacy from Avignon back to Rome once again. Upon his death in 1378, though, uh, the cardinals of Rome elected another pope. His name is Pope Urban VI. And Pope Urban VI, due to his temper and due to his hypocrisy, was so unpopular that the cardinals who elected him lied about the election to save their face. Well, obviously, this didn't go well for them because Pope Urban flexed his spiritual muscles and threatened excommunication upon them and said, you can't do this. Well, that caused a big uproar. And in reaction to Urban's threats of excommunication, the cardinals relocated the papacy back to Avignon and said, Urban is no longer the pope. We actually, we, we decrown him as pope and we elect another pope. His name was Pope Clement VII in Avignon. Well, Urban wouldn't have it. Urban's like, no, I was rightly appointed. There's only one head of the church. There cannot be two. I will not step down. 
Well, Pope Clement said, I was rightly appointed. I will not step down. So by the time of 1378 to 1409, two popes existed in Europe, both claiming to be the divinely appointed successor of Peter, the vicar of Christ, two men for the one seat, for the one holy Catholic apostolic church. Now, there were other periods before this that rival popes existed. So this was not like, whoa, it's the first time. It wasn't the first time, but it was the first time where it was significant because it was almost half a century of two popes claiming the papacy. It had never been that long before. It was always short-lived. So obviously, this was an embarrassment in many ways to the church, to the claims of Rome. Uh, How can you have... If God is not a God of confusion, but of peace and order, if, if, if God truly appointed one man to be the head of the church, why are we in a position where there are two men, both ordained by the bishops of Rome? Who do we trust? And if you consider the context of this day, the theological context as a reminder, their view of church, their view of sacraments meant that If we are not with the Pope, who holds the keys of the kingdom of God, by whom baptism and the Lord's Supper and penance and last rites truly funnel, if we're not with that Pope, we are damned. We are locked out of heaven. So faithful Christians were obviously spiritually anxious. I want to be a part of the people of God. If I'm with with him and he's not the right guy, I'm going to hell. If I'm, not with, and if I'm not with this guy, and he's the right one, who is the rightful heir who holds the keys to my salvation? So obviously, this situation uh, was a major debacle that fractured Catholic Europe. And this is known as the Great Papal Schism. Not to be confused with the Great Schism of 1054 that we talked about, where the, where the one church in history finally divided between Eastern Orthodoxy and Western Christianity. Uh, This is the great papal schism that divided Europe. Kings and bishops took their side during this feud. Kings saw opportunity for political ambition and maneuver. Bishops saw opportunities to enlarge their purse and their mistresses. And the end result was at the end of 1409, the excommunication pronouncements from both popes upon the people, by the time of 1409, brothers and sisters, almost all of Europe was excommunicated at some point. What year was that? 1409. By the time of 1409, almost all of Europe was excommunicated. And if you understand like i've said before the 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 theology of the day the faithful believed that they were excommunicated if the pope truly holds the keys if he represents the church and the church are the people of god and you're ousted from the people of god you're damned and that is a serious thing so of course you have this massive immorality and hypocrisy. You have these power play ambitions that the people are watching. 
you have this debacle for almost half a century of two men claiming to be the one true head of the church. And you're not sure who to trust. And you're fearful for your salvation. You probably would be an emotional wreck and spiritually insecure and angry and bitter and many other things. The people of Europe were. They were ready for a change. Because something had to give. They couldn't bear the weight of it any longer by the time of Luther. Now, needless to say that this was an utter embarrassment, as I mentioned before. This schism, however, uh, grew worse. And you're like, Jonathan, how can it grow worse? It did. This schism ended up becoming worse uh, with the issue of the Council of Constance, uh, which I'll get to in just a moment. But just as a reminder, as we close on the section of papal authority, this schism, this embarrassment of two men claiming to be the one pope, combined with the immorality, was a major major mile marker on the road to Reformation that signaled something has to change. It brought into question more clearly and forcibly than it ever had before in Roman Catholic Europe uh, that maybe the authority of the pope isn't as a isn't as a big thing as we have thought it was. For the first time, many ordinary Christians and faithful Catholic theologians began to question more forcibly who is the head of the church? What authority exists for the church? Because they started to doubt that it was a pope. They began to question the legitimacy of the papacy more and more as these debacles continued. The mistrust of the Pope escalated among the ordinary faithful in Europe. So when Luther began to launch his attacks on the papacy, the common Catholics in Europe, and in particular Germany, by and large, agreed because they saw it. Just like we see a lot of our politicians' stupidity, right? We can smell. We have, we have a good nose to smell plastic. Being the usualism for the other word. We know when there are issues glaring. The people of Europe knew. They saw it. They were aware of it. And so when a bold German monk launched his attacks, they welcomed it. It was not shocking to them. They were like, yes, this is what we need. They saw the scandal. They saw the abuse, the hypocrisy. The people, the faithful Catholics of Europe were tired sheep looking for greener pastures. And that, in the providence of God, is what led, in large part, to the Reformation. These papal abuses, immorality, and scandals. But the issues of the papacy grew worse. This great schism grew worse. And like, how can it grow worse? Because of the issue of conciliarism. A fancy word, conciliarism. This is an important thing that's forgotten a lot in church history because the way that the church began to address the issue of, all right, we don't think the Pope thing is good. The church began to look at a different route. All right, well, if, 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 the, if the papacy isn't a biblical doctrine, they began to doubt that. If the, if the Pope really isn't the head what authority is there for the church? And a lot of faithful bishops and Catholic theologians during this period of time posed their answer. Conciliarism, which means 
councils. They believed that the authority of the church doesn't rest in one man, but it's embodied by the whole church. We are all the bride of Christ. We are all the people of God. And the truth is given to the whole church collectively. And the whole church collectively is represented by the bishops of the church. And God in times past have brought ecumenical councils to settle disputes on the nature of Jesus and of salvation and of the Trinity. Therefore, councils, not popes, are the guide and authority for the people of God. And so to get rid of the two-pope situation, Roman Catholic Europe developed an ecumenical council to the Council of Pisa in 1409 and the Council of Constance in 1414 to settle the issue. The bishops of Rome gathered and said, councils have authority over popes. There are many Catholics during this time who believe that maybe the papacy was a legitimate position but didn't hold the power that had been touted. There was a lot of different disagreements on that. But what became more clear to many of them was the ultimate authority to guide the church needs to be the collective voice of the church embodied by her rulers, not one man. So the ecumenical councils came and said the authority of church councils are superior to popes, and that was the Council of Constance. The Council of Constance 1414 to 1418, four-year deliberation. The most significant thing for you to remember from leaving this, if you remember Council of Constance, was that in the Council of Constance, the bishops of Europe said that councils, not popes, are authoritative over the church. They are the authority to guide the church, not popes. And so what did they do? And these councils... They deposed the current two popes and elected a third one, Alexander V. Well, neither of the other two popes bowed their knee to this Alexander. Alexander said, I'm not bowing the knee because I was rightly appointed. And so you had, by 1414, for another several years, three popes. In Europe, all claiming to be the head of the one true Catholic Church. Obviously, that was a mess, and it continued to fracture Europe. Now, in the province of God, uh, and in and in irony, because as, as we've talked about before, history is full of ironic twists and turns. It was the actions of these councils that actually solidified the ultimate supremacy of the papacy as we know it today. The failure of the first council of Pisa when they elected that pope, the third, third pope, it ended in a debacle. And I'm not going to go into all the details because you guys can't, it won't matter, you won't retain it, that's okay. But needless to say, between council of Pisa and council of Constance, Two to three popes yo-yo back and forth all the time. So the, quote, savior of the church, these church councils, made matters worse one time, a second time, a third time. So by the time of the Council of Constance in 1418, the very end of it, they failed to persuade Christians in Europe 
that church councils really have any authority. They've just made it worse. And in great ambition, the, the, one of the popes deposed all the others. And finally, Europe had one pope over them all. And he solidified papal power and claimed the highest claims of the papacy known in church history at that time. And the people longed for it because they wanted unity and strong leadership once again. How did he depose the others if they wouldn't listen to him? Like, no. the, long, the long story short is uh, everyone was so fed up that the – basically he, everyone was so fed up and he was just able to persuade them. If you ever know, like, so, someone who just has that kind of a personality, just the whole room wrapped around their tent, like, he was just the man. He was, he was like a mic drop. No, this is done. Boom, I'm the Pope. Almost how it was. So, the religious road to free, to, excuse me, the religious road to reformation. A long road but highlighted by the embarrassment of papal authority and abuses of the papacy, the Babylonian captivity, and the failure of the church councils to rectify the issue. Now, as a reminder, church councils are not wrong. Church history shows clearly that the truth of God is deposited to the saints, and ecumenical councils have had their place. When we talk about Council of Nicaea, that's orthodoxy. When we talk about the Council of Chalcedon, the Chalcedonian Creed, where we talk about the hypostatic union of Jesus, the council settled it. As Christians, we can say Chalcedon. We can go to Nicaea, and that's authoritative because insofar as what they said was biblical, it's true. Councils have had a place, but councils have often erred, contradicted themselves, just like the popes. Has any of you heard that phrase before from someone in church history? That the councils of that the councils and popes have often erred and contradicted to themselves? Luther. Do you see the stage? Do you see the setting? Again. Where we are right now is, is late 1300s to early 1400s. Luther and the Reformation is 1517. So this is still 150 years before Luther. But you see the chessboard being played to get to Luther. Conciliarism failed. And the end result was actually a restrengthening of the papal authority claim. By the time you get to Luther... Although those popes, as if you paid attention earlier when I was talking about the players and all of them, those were the popes right before Luther. Although they were jacked up, people had a renewed faith. Weirdly, yeah, the pope's bad, but there's probably something better. But he's the head of the church somehow. We'll just—it's better than what we had before. Much like how the Republicans are in many ways with their presidency. <laughs> I'll stop. Anyway. It's not good. It's not great, but better than what we had. 
That was a religious road to Reformation. Much more could be said. Uh, this next part, I'm going to blitz through. Again, there's so much. I wish we can detail more. If you guys ever want to geek out and get deep into the weeds, we'll just need to have a dinner. Someone needs to make burgers and stuff. We'll, we'll just make a note. Like, yeah, we should just do that. I would love that. Anyway, moving on. Political road to Reformation. I hinted already, but we're just going to blitz through this because it's important, but not that important to the other things I want to hit. Political road to Reformation. The rise of nation-states and nationalism played a key role in the Reformation coming and being successful. I already hinted a little bit, but I'm going to go back in time a little bit. So we're going to go into the DeLorean, back to the fall of Rome, 457. Remember when it was a dark place in the empire? The empire fell. It was the ashes and the aftermath of Rome's fall. Do you remember what rose in its place since there was no central government in Western Europe anymore? Feudalism. You guys remember that? Knights, lords, feudal lords. It was, it was the rich landowners who became the rulers in Europe for a while because they were the people with the money. They were the people with the land. And so you're the poor guy who needs their protection. I'll work for food and protect me with your knights. However, in the course of time, as men became more literate again in Europe, we've talked about that. I'm not going to go back to explaining that. As men became more illiterate in Europe, as, became, as Christianity grew more in Europe, Despite the flaws, as men began to learn to read and write again, as trade began to open again in Europe, and 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, as we just learned about, 1492, as Europe and the world grew and, tra- and became a little smaller, middle class started to rise. Feudal lands became more nation-states. And the pride of nationalism began to grip Europe more. I'm a Frenchman. I'm a Catholic, but I'm a French Catholic. I'm Catholic, but I'm an English Catholic. I'm Catholic, but by God, I am a German Catholic. The rise of nationalism was a key issue because for centuries, the claims of Rome was not only that the Pope was the head of the church, but remember, it became the claim that the Pope was also the head of all secular authority. And that the state should bow down to the church. And you guys remember what happened when certain kings didn't? What did the popes do? Excommunicate. Interdict. Banish you. Well... By the 1300s, by the 1400s, the monarchs in Europe have had enough. Many kings flex their muscles back. The popes flex their muscles back. Sometimes the kings won. Most of the time the popes won because the king ultimately wanted to go to heaven and bowed their knee to the pope. But because of the rise of nationalism, the world growing smaller and larger at the same time with exploration, with the increase of wealth, nationalist pride began to be in the right. No, by God, I will not bow my knee to a pope in Rome. I am a German prince. I am a king of England. And that fueled the feeling of independent church states. No, we have our bishops in England. We really don't need Rome. We acknowledge the papacy, but not really. That feeling grew over the course of time in Europe. 
which leads to Martin Luther, because in Martin Luther's day, knowing the pulse of his culture, exploited that feeling and called in one of his books the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nobility of German princes was one of his books. German princes, it is your divine right to exercise secular authority for the good of the German people and the prosperity of the gospel. Justification by faith, German princes. Do not bow the knee. Yes, we are German princes and we will uphold the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will not bow the knee to this pope. So by the time of Luther, the desire of the German people for an independent German church and state away from the boot of the papacy sounded good. So that was the political road to Reformation. Lastly, we're going to blitz three here. Again, stay with me as best you can. The theological road to Reformation. We've talked about a lot of theology in medieval era already, so I'm not going to go into all those details. I'm going to try and concisely talk about a few things. First, and most importantly, is Scripture and tradition. If you know anything about the Reformation, Scripture and tradition is one of those things you should probably know, right? Because the challenge and the position of Roman Catholic Europe was that the authority of the Pope and canon law of the church were the ultimate authorities for the church. And you had many voices eventually saying, no, that is not true. It is scripture and scripture alone that is the authority to guide infallibly the church. However, lest we be careless historians, and I don't want you all to be careless historians, especially as, as Reformed Protestants. Like, to be Protestant historically is to be Reformed. Now, I want you guys to know your history well so you don't look like fools talking to Roman Catholic individuals who say you don't know your history. When the Reformation talked about sola scriptura, scripture alone, they did not deny the need or role of tradition. There's something in church history called the great tradition, the, the witness of the church. In a nutshell, there grew, by the time of the medieval ages, two positions regarding scripture and tradition. And uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to do like a fun pop quiz, but I don't have time. So... I'm going to scratch that. I was going to pop a quiz, and I thought of you too. I was going to ask you, Isaiah, but <laughs> don't worry about it. Um, just I'm looking at my, my, my time here. So, If I was to pose a question to you guys asking Roman Catholics, they say tradition over scripture, you'd probably say yeah, right? By and large. Today, that's overall true. In this context, that was not true. So we have to be careful. There were two overarching opinions within Western Roman Catholicism at this time. The first was that there were two sources of authority. Divine scripture. No one denied that scripture was authoritative, by the way. So don't believe that Roman Catholics at this time thought that the, the, the scriptures meant nothing. They would decry that. And Catholics today would still decry that. 
I believe scripture is authoritative and divinely inspired. How dare you? But they also affirm at this, there was, they also affirm now because of this period of time, the idea that where scripture is silent, but that church tradition has given us insight into things necessary also for salvation, that is also equally authoritative and divinely inspired. In history, that was called the T2 understanding of tradition. There was T1 and T2. T2 is what I just mentioned. Not to be confused with T2, Terminator Judgment Day, but I'll stop there. T2, and this was actually a later development in the medieval era. This was not common, uh, by and large, for most of Roman, Roman Catholic history. Pockets were... But it was by the 1300s and 1400s that you began to have more Catholic theologians believe that scripture is authoritative, but also tradition is divinely authoritative as well, that they were both on equal weight. However, that was not – that's obviously, obviously as Reformed people, we disagree with that. The position of Luther, Calvin, and many other – Catholic theologians before that was a T1 position, and I'm going to read that position. Now, if you aren't careful, you might think that this uh, quote sounds very Roman Catholic, but don't need to be scared of this. This is, this is the position of orthodoxy and of the Reformation. The sole authority of Holy Scripture is upheld as canon or standard of revealed truth in such a way that Scripture is not contrasted with tradition. Scripture, it is argued, can be understood only within the church and has been understood within the church by the great doctors specifically committed to the task of interpretation of Scripture and especially endowed with the gift, turning the page, of understanding this unique source of truth. The history of obedient interpretation is the tradition of the church basically the historic understanding of the nature of scripture and tradition is that the inspired teachings of scripture were handed down so that the church catholic grew from adolescence to maturity and guided by the spirit's illumination and providence through the scriptures tradition became the carrier of the regula fide which is the rule of faith that's important why is this important? Because Luther and many others did not reject a faithful tradition of interpretation that the Catholic Church had upheld. It rejected a tradition that is equally divine in nature and authoritative over the church and a tradition that is subordinate to the scriptures if it is contradictory. And so that began to set the stage for the Protestant Reformation as the T2 position, the two authorities, began to grow and emboldened by the rule of the papacy that says, I am the one who makes that tradition, ultimately. So that was a major issue to the road to Reformation, theologically speaking. There's also many other issues with the issues of preaching and sacraments. We mentioned indulgences in particular and the development of indulgences. The selling of indulgences became 
developed and baked into the penance system. If you all remember, we talked about the medieval theology, the penance system. Penance was the sacrament by which if you sinned after your baptism, you have guilt. But if you go to the priest, you're absolved of guilt, but you still have the temporal punishment that you must take from God because God is just. So how do you get rid of it? Penance. Proving your remorse. Well, how do you prove your remorse? You do righteous Christian deeds, right? You put off the old man, put on the new man. Babe, I'm sorry I yelled at you. Prove it. All right, well, I'm not going to yell at you again. Prove it, right? For this period of time, the penance system was prove that you truly are remorseful for your sin, and that guarantees that you will have that remission of sin. Well, what greater way than giving a gift of land or of money for the cause of Christ? And so the selling of indulgences began to increase more and more by the time of the 1300s and the 1400s, early into Luther's day. The highlight was right before Luther uh, with a guy named Johann Tetzel. He was the best salesman of indulgences in Roman Catholic history. St. Peter's Basilica was basically built because of him. As the coin in the coffer ring sold as a soul from Purgatory Spring, is what he would say. Well... The selling of indulgences became a huge part of papal control. Well, I can threaten excommunication or they can pay an indulgence to fund my mistresses or my warfares or my building projects. And of course they will. Because why? Because they want their souls liberated from sin. All right. So much more that can be said. Um, I know this is going to sound terrible, but I'm going to skip the part on justification by works because I don't have the time to unpack it the way I do want to. But it will fit nicely with as we get really, really close to Luther. The last thing, and I'll say, of the theological road to Reformation was on the issue of Bible translation, Latin or the common tongue. That was a major issue. The ma- major last leading issue was Bible translation because for centuries in Europe... The Bible was only produced in Latin because Latin was the language of the day for legality purposes and for the papacy. And we talked about why that is. I'm not going to revisit that. But Latin was it. The church officials declared that the Bible was too complex for the ordinary Christian to understand, therefore did not want the Bible to be translated into the common tongue so that misinterpretation would not happen, so that preservation of truth happens, and therefore the preservation of the church. All right, I'm going to ask you a question. Is that wrong? Yes, I would agree that, that that's wrong. Their argumentation and reasoning is wrong. But were they unreasonable to argue that way? No. So let's get some charity. I will say not all, but majority of Roman Catholic theologians of this day sincerely held this belief. Truly they believed the unity and preservation of the people of God depends upon a faithful interpretation. We don't want billions of splinter groups, i.e. Protestantism. We don't want Jack Cuckoo doctrines, like the Arians. So therefore, we keep the scriptures in the language of the church, which they believe was Latin. 
and we will interpret, we will read it, and the faithful trust and follow it. Now, they were wrong, but they were not unreasonable. However, there was also a powerful group that knew that it was for control. They did not want, uh, they wanted nonconformity. Excuse me, their fear was nonconformity. They wanted power. A lot of popes knew that this was a way to keep the people under their authority. And they utilized this and forbid Bible translations. Even when other bishops said, we should begin to reconsider this. A lot of popes said no because of control. Because history had proven up until then many times that when independent Bible studies happened, the people arrived to non-Roman Catholic conclusions. So, papal infallibility, purgatory and penance, selling of indulgences, praying to, praying to saints and to the dead. When men had the opportunity to read the scriptures for themselves, they began to question key tenets, transubstantiation. Hmm. I don't think this sounds like apostolic teaching. So Rome did not want that. Emphasis on preaching and the word of God taught in the common tongue was forbidden. You had to have either the pope or a bishop's permission. To do so without their authority was, uh, was on pain of imprisonment or death. So to keep scripture in Latin, the official language of the Roman church, was a power play for many. Although many genuinely believed it was for the best welfare of the church. Their conclusions, in the end, caged the word of God from the people. So when pre-Reformation voices like Wycliffe and Tyndall, the Waldensians, Petrobrusians, Johann Huss, and Luther began to open the scriptures, the glaring hypocrisy, the glaring theological issues all started to connect. And with the rise of nationalism, the desire for a new, fresh wind in the sails for the morality, direction, and authority of the church, and for a people burdened by a penance system that they knew was broken and were being literally bled dry in their purses from, when they hear Christ is the head of the church and you are saved purely by grace through faith and that scripture not popes or councils are the authority of the church that's good news and that leads to the reformation alright we'll take a few minutes if there's any other questions before we conclude the what? What are the Jack Goofy doctrines? Oh, it's just a silly term for things that are silly, goofy, broken. Cuckoo, like a cuckoo clock. Oh, somebody was listening. Yeah, cuckoo clocks. It's silly, loud noise. Was most of Europe excommunicated because one pope excommunicated one half and the other pope excommunicated yes. the other? Yes, and then you introduce the third pope's. So, yeah, so, so it, it was not like it all one fell swoop. It was 
this region here, this region here, so that by the time, at some point, if you lived in Europe as a Catholic, you were excommunicated from the people of God. So who do you trust? Yeah. Were there any countries or regions not in that situation at any point in time? Uh, like neutral places? No, there were no... Uh, yes or no, depending on how you find it. So for those who maybe not have heard this question, were there any neutral regions in Europe that weren't excommunicated? No. In you, if you were a Christian in Europe, you were excommunicated at some point at this period in time. Uh, now, if you were to talk about regions where that didn't exist, so for example, you had uh, churches in other places in the world. We're not talking about those. We're talking about, we're talking about Europe. Now... What's, if we want to be really contextual, remember the Great Schism of 1054, right? All the other churches were what? Eastern Orthodox. And the Roman Catholics excommunicated them. So they weren't even Christian in their mind. And the Orthodox didn't consider most Westerners Christian. They did and they didn't. Uh, if you guys remember real fast, when the, excommunic- when the Great Schism of 1054 happened... It was the West that made a unanimous excommunication of the East. The East only excommunicated the cardinal uh, and the people who would support the cardinal's decisions. They didn't excommunicate every other Christian. So Eastern Orthodox would look on Western European Christians and could say uh, they could be a Christian, but they're a part of an apostate church. Western Catholics were not that charitable to them. Any other questions? So you have the Eastern Orthodox churches. I'm assuming there were churches down in Africa mm-hmm. that were, weren't part of either Eastern yeah. or Catholic churches. Like yeah. So you had you, you had you had Catholic churches in Africa. Africa. Those you could say would be more neutral, but they weren't in Europe. Okay. So like they weren't excommunicated. Uh, and in in Africa, it was predominantly uh, Roman Catholic. Eastern Orthodoxy wasn't rich there uh, at that point in time. And Roman Catholicism was not as vibrant anymore in Northern Africa as it was early on because the Muslims took over. So were there like missionaries from any of these more scripturally Orthodox churches like going to Europe and saying, hey, mm-hmm, yeah. I'll tell you about the true Jesus? Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, so uh, for those who couldn't hear, question asks, so were there faithful Christian missionaries going to this fractured Europe talking about the true Jesus and the gospel? Yes, absolutely, which is next lesson, which is on pre-Reformation voices. There were many individuals who called for Reformation during this time, uh, many, many that uh, you guys wouldn't have never heard their names of, but then there are some that stand out like Wycliffe, Tyndall, uh, the Waldensians, uh, you have the Lawlords and other guys and other groups that did and tried. Uh, some successful, some not. So we'll talk about those. All right. Love you all, and we're done. We're dismissed.